This is Geeks Unleashed, episode 50. Have you got a drink, Derek? I have some water. Oh, <laughs> disappointing. Right, I'm saving <laughs> myself. I'm not. Right. <laughs> Good for you. Hello, welcome to Geeks Unleashed. This is episode 50. I'm Mark. And I'm Jasmine. Each week we cover the news of the week and we pick a couple of things to review that caught our fancy in TV, comics, movies and games. However, to celebrate our 50th episode, we thought we would invite back a former Geeks Unleashed uh, guest star who previously appeared on our monthly book club. We've also intended to do more conversations like this with other creators, but we thought why not celebrate our 50th episode like this? Yeah, and for our 50th episode, we are joined again by Irish playwright, musician and writer Derek Flynn. So thank you so much for coming back, Derek. Hi guys, thanks for having me. <laughs> no worries, thanks for coming back and I like, appreciate it. We, we were like sort of talking about what can we do to celebrate our 50th and we were like, want to do something a little bit different from the norm and we've talked about as well doing more sort of conversations and interviews and things like that. So this, we thought why not start with someone that you know, we've, we already I'm have had. Delighted to be here for the 50th episode as well, that's great. <laughs> yeah. No worries. And um, before we get started though, like um, you, you You've already disappointed me and said that you're drinking water, but what would you normally be drinking, Derek? <laughs> um, probably, uh, if I was if I was out, it would be uh, in a pub. It would, it would be um, beer, but if I was at home, I eat like a glass of red wine. Oh, nice! Wow. Oh, do you have a red preference, like a Cabernet or a Pinot Noir? I like Shiraz. Me too. Do you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, there we go. Yeah. yeah. I'll tell you, and I, I, I was told this story really, really quickly before we get into anything. I just love this story. Well, as we're two Shiraz fans here, um, I was teaching guitar to someone uh, a few years ago, and he was a guy from Iran, and uh, he'd come here as actually to Ireland as a refugee from Iran, and um, there was a program uh, where they were giving uh, music lessons, and so I ended up teaching this guy, and he was from the Shiraz region in Iran. And he said that since the Islamic Revolution, they don't obviously they don't make the wine there anymore. Mm-hmm. So now Shiraz is made in everywhere else in the world but the <laughs> region that it's named after. So there you go. Interesting. <laughs> That's really interesting. That was, yeah, I thought that was a nice bit of trivia for any of the Shiraz fans out there. So there we go. <laughs> do do you um drink drink the normal uh, the standard Irish Guinness as well, or do you not? No, I'm actually not a Guinness fan and never have been. I like I've drank Guinness on on occasion, but it wouldn't be my go-to. Um, I've just never kind of it really is an acquired taste. And it's I've quite a, really... it's quite a filling drink, isn't it? Like yeah, this, so. it is. It is. And like I say, like if I was going out for the night out to a pub, you know, I'd be, I'd, I would be drinking pints of beer. So pints yeah. of Guinness is just like, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> It's not like having a meal. It's, you're ready to go to sleep. I like, know, oh, I know. Yeah. It's like it's like having a meal in a glass, isn't it? I've had the odd one, and uh, even in Ireland, I've had. I, you know, when I the handful of times I've been to Ireland, I, you know, first drink, I'm always like, well, it's got to be a Guinness because you're in Ireland. Oh, you'd have but, to, like, yeah, you'd and, have uh, to. and but then after that, I'm like, no, I've got to switch to something else. If I have any more of these. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> um, yeah, and they used to give them to uh, pregnant women. Uh, oh ago. yeah, no, I remember that. Yeah, you had a little, a little, a little half a pint uh, a day of Guinness was supposed to be good for you because it was full of iron. Um, so yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so you wouldn't, it wouldn't fly nowadays. Yeah, but there you go. Yeah. I'm sure they've changed that advice quite a lot. Yeah, so, I yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, but so since this is um a pop culture pop uh, pop pop 
podcast tripping over my words there <laughs> yeah. uh we'd love to know really Derek what is your secret origin how did you get into and find your love for comics and pop culture um I, I think actually my love of comics was the first love so I, I I play music as well and obviously I write um yeah novels but the first thing before I ever wrote stories or played any musical instrument or anything like that first thing I got into was comics without a doubt um and that's like going as far as far back as um you know we used to draw uh, them as well i read like online yeah yeah i used to i used to um write and draw myself and another guy in my class when we were in about i think about sixth standard fifth or sixth standard so we were about 11 or 12 we were obsessed at that time with um the action comics uh, as in the action comic itself action uh, and so oh so maybe, the superman the superman one you mean action comics no, no, the uh, the British one. Oh, uh, yeah, it was created uh, just before 2008, I think, and it was basically banned because it was too violent. Um, <laughs> it was written by uh, written and created uh, by a lot of the same people that did 2008, so Pat Mills and all those guys. And um, so they'd come off like the, the war comics and all those, and they decided they wanted to do um, something a bit more uh, kind of more like uh, like say the dirty harry movies and that kind of stuff so there was a cop oh, yeah. in it it was actually you know it was it was kind of like the cop in in action was like a precursor to dread basically uh, really you know it was like a dirty harry kind of character and then they had this um it, jaws was out at the time uh, or had been out in 77 obviously so i'm talking probably early 80s this was so it was um uh hookjaw was this uh, shark character that was in it. But it was dismembering people left, right and centre in what was a kid's <laughs> wow. comic. So they, uh, they, I think they only lasted about a year, but I remember like we, we got our hands on back issues, you know, because uh, it was long out of, uh, um, it was long stopped being sold by the time uh, we got into it. But we got our hands on a bunch of, bunch of back issues and we were like, loving this, you know. One-Eyed Jack was another guy who was a, a cop character. In it. And so we used to just draw them all. And then we started writing our own, drawing our own stories and stuff like that. So it went from 2000 AD. And then, of course, I was in love with, um, I fell in love with Alan Moore uh, from Halo Jones in 2000 AD and uh, various other stories. And then just followed them all then over to... Um, to DC and Marvel, basically, and went from there, you know? Yeah, I remember us talking about uh, your love for Alan Moore when we did our uh, V for Vendetta episode. <laughs> yeah, and actually, at the time, um, in Ireland, like, it was very hard. Like, again, we're talking even, I think it was early 90s was when Forbidden Planet opened up a store in Ireland for the very first time. I think it was probably around 1990, 91 or something like that. So before that, uh, it, there were no comic shops in Ireland. Like literally Forbidden Planet opened the first one in Dublin in, in I think 1991. And um, so, but you would read, uh, like if you got your hands on American comics, you'd be reading about all this stuff. And of course, at the time, everyone was talking about Watchmen, Dark Knight Returns, and then Sandman, all this stuff. And I was reading about all these and uh, there was no way of getting your hands on them in Ireland, you know. So when they when Forbidden Planet opened its first shop, I made a pilgrimage and bought up everything <laughs> by Alan that I could get my hands on, it. and as well as Neil, uh, the first Sandman collection and stuff like that. I remember the first time uh, I went to Forbidden Planet in New York City. The this was maybe like ten years ago, and I was like, "Damn, this place is awesome! I love it here." <laughs> <laughs> I lived in New York for a while and I loved, um, oh God, the name now escapes me, but it's a big comic shop. On oh, Midtown. Uh, 
uh, not Midtown Comics, oh. but the one uh, it had it had a guy's name in the in in it was like someone's comic shop or something like that. But it was a big place. It was around the corner from I think it was around Thirty Fourth, around the corner from uh, Empire State Building or something like that. Hmm. Jim Hanley, Jim Hanley, am I right? No, I don't know. <laughs> well, I <can't. laughs> It could be gone now. I don't know, but uh, yeah, it was Jim. I think it was Jim Hanley's comic shop, and it was uh, this huge, big place. And again, like I, I was coming from Forbidden Planet, so like they had a lot of stuff, but nothing like the amount of stuff that they had in this place. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, "Oh my god, this is amazing!" <laughs> the amount of back issues and stuff because they had a very small back issue section of uh-huh. Forbidden Planet in Dublin, and, and the amount of back issues and stuff. Again, I, I think I probably like, spent about a month's pay <laughs> in one day in, in there. Like, <laughs> So uh, it's that you got your first like big break in 2014 in, in the publishing world. So and that was one of your short stories, which got picked up with uh, the best new Irish writing from the O'Brien Press. But like what was the whole process of kind of seeing the journey from the idea in your head to actually being published? Um, well, that one came about because I had done uh, or I was doing um, a, a master's in creative writing in Trinity College in Dublin. And that was a year long course that I was doing. And um, just around the same time, luckily, uh, O'Brien Press had decided that they were going to bring out this book of Irish, new Irish writing, which was basically going to be a couple of stories from, from uh, two, two stories from two students in each of the colleges, uh, universities around Ireland that did the creative writing, the masters in creative writing, and also a story from one of their uh, tutors. So that meant that you had some big names in there. Um, Frank McGuinness is one of them and stuff. Uh, well-known Irish short story writers who, who were also teaching in the places. So um, they basically, I was just looking at the story that I, I, I gave up to one of our, we all had to give up a story to, to one of our tutors, the head tutor on the course and mine and another guys were, were picked. So that was uh, brilliant because it was the first kind of uh, taste of what it was like to have something in print as in not just a magazine in print, but an actual book in a bookshop, you know? And also there was a launch, there was a big launch for it because um, O'Brien Press are quite big in Dublin. So they had a lot of uh, people come to this big launch in Dublin. So it was fantastic for the first time to, to see it. And the course itself was fantastic for me because we did a lot of workshopping of our work in it. And there was an amazing bunch of writers working with me in the class. And what the book that I worked, what I, the, the pieces that I workshopped ended up being the first book. And it like what it went through in, in the space of the year in Trinity um, was fantastic because it came out way better than it had been going in, basically, you know. But in the meantime, I had been... Um, submitting stuff to agents and coming kind of really close sometimes but not quite getting there you know mm-hmm. and at the, at the time it was more difficult because it was all a lot there wasn't a lot of uh, email at the time in the sense that they didn't like taking email submissions at the time now everybody takes email submissions but yeah. like even even up to about like six seven years ago they were reticent a lot of places about taking email submissions so you had to go through the whole rigmarole of, you know, printing out three chapters, e- um, um, posting that, and then you had to wait around to hear back. So it was really time consuming, both preparing the submissions and then waiting to hear back. So how and do you mentally did... prepare for that part? God, that's the worst part. <laughs> <laughs> Without a doubt, that's the worst part. Because oh. um, I never, I never really, I, I was always more interested in long form stories. So I didn't write a lot of short stories. Like I have written a few 
um, and but I didn't write a lot, and so I didn't uh, I didn't send off a lot of short stories to magazines, which some of my friends I know who write do. So they were kind of used to a lot of re rejection letters. I hadn't done a, a lot of that, so <laughs> like so hitting the agents for the first time was 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 my first experience of of getting rejection letters. And in fairness to them, some of them were of them were lovely and really helpful and very nice about it. Others it was just like pure form letters, you know, just yeah. Just write in your name, and the rest is is being sent out to thousands of other people to say kind of thing, you know. Yeah. Um. But yeah, that is, I think, without doubt, the hardest part, you know, because you get up in the morning and you're buzzing to sit down and do some writing, and then the letter arrives in the door and it says no, and hates <laughs> you for the whole day, you know. Yeah. So, uh, but I, I was, you know, I was glad I did it in one way because I got a lot of really good feedback from some agents, and it kind of did give me the, the, um, I suppose the confidence to go further with it you know that uh, you know a good few of the agents did say to me you know we really like your writing but this doesn't suit what we're doing at the moment and it's so hard as well like i you know uh, like i'm most of my stuff is is self-published now at the moment because it's it's just so hard and time consuming because the industry is very much geared towards what's going on at the moment, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you know yourselves, you see it on the bookshelves, you know, if it's the woman in the window or the girl on the train, that's yeah, yeah. what everyone wants, you know, at yeah. the moment, or if it's like 10 years ago, whatever it was, Twilight. Or yeah, I was literally about to say know? that. We had like vampire books everywhere. Yeah. Vampire 20 years shows. ago, we had Armageddon and Deep Impact come out at the same time. Like it's, yes. yes, yeah, it's so true. And it, ha yeah, it happens in the movies as well. And I'm mm -hmm. sure if you're a scriptwriter, you're, you're probably in the same boat. But, you know, you could spend four years working on a book and in this four years, like the, the, the whole scene would have changed. And, you know, you might think, oh, yeah, vampires are great now. So I'm going to write about vampires. And, and suddenly you find vampires are out. So you, you just got to write what you want to write. And then that but that makes it harder then because you've got to find someone who's not just following the latest trend, you know. Right. And of course, you know, they want their writer to sell and the, the publishers want their books to sell. So they're looking at what's selling, you know. So it's understandable in one sense. But from the writer's point of view, it's, it's very, very difficult. So I was doing that for a while. And like I say, I was getting these responses, like things like, for instance, if, if, my, uh, um, if, if the book that I had sent out had maybe four or five main characters in it, they'd come back to me and they'd say, at the moment, we're only dealing with books that have one main character. You know, and yeah, I know. <laughs> and that wasn't the craze. That wasn't the craziest of the responses that I got. Actually, one response was, we're not taking any books at the moment that feature characters from America written by writers who aren't from America. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so they really uh, get uh, that specific when they're when they're replying yeah, to you yeah absolutely and all the first thing that came into my head was like one of my favorite crime writers is john Connolly, who's an irish guy who writes an american um detective and you know is, is huge and uh so I, I don't know what what the thinking was behind that but yeah that was an actual reply that i got because the the, the the character, I think it was probably Broken Falls, my first book. So the character is an American character, and obviously it was being written by an Irish guy. Do they think that you're going to mistakenly write a scene with the, with your main character driving on the wrong side of the road? I mean, yeah, what the hell? Or, you know, or start shouting Begara, Begara or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, 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 it's very, but they do get that specific. It's really weird. And, you know, when you're when you're presented with something like that, you can kind of, you kind of start going, Jesus, I, I don't know about this at all. Like, you know, so, um, so I just decided, you know what? Uh, well, actually, what happened was I finished Broken Falls after finishing the, the um, college course, the university course. And 
Um, I had been on a mentorship program with local arts council here in Waterford, where I'm living a few years before. And I was contacted uh, at around the same time that I've kind of started to think about self-publishing by the arts council, uh, the local arts council to say, if you've been on a mentorship scheme, there's a grant available now to, if you would like to take the work that you did on that scheme, take it further. And I had actually worked with the mentor uh, on the first book, Broken Falls. So I thought, sure, hell, you know, why not? So I, I applied for it and I got it. So that's why I decided to self-publish the first book. And that's how I got into it. Actually, that's quite a nice little segue there because I was just about to start asking you about John Ryan. Um, so you've written sort of four John Ryan novels, The Dead Girls, Broken Falls, The Dark, obviously your most recent one, The Lotus Eaters, and all of that's set in America. And actually, you mentioned something that I was wanted to ask you about was what kind of research did you do into the setting of being in America? I know you did live in New York for a while, but obviously this is um, set in Wyoming as well. So like, just how, how did you go about, sort of, I guess, the creation of John Ryan and the setting as well of that world? Yeah, well, the first uh, the first book was only supposed to be a standalone book. I wasn't planning on writing a series. Um, it was just that I had read an article before that on um, uh, an area in Nova Scotia, which was the biggest Irish speaking, um, Irish language speaking uh, community outside of the Gaeltacht in Ireland, which is, mm-hmm. is a, fam- a famous Irish speaking community in Ireland. And the biggest uh, community outside of Ireland was in Nova Scotia. And I, ju- I was just started thinking about, it. wouldn't it be funny if you wrote a story about a cop, say from America, who, stom- who has to come in here and solve a crime and he's confronted by all these people speaking Irish, you know? And I just, I, I started to think more and more about it. And I just thought that'd make a really good uh, story, you know? And then I started thinking, well, okay, I can't have him speaking. It's actually speaking in Irish, you know? Um, so maybe if I just said it amongst an Irish community or like an Irish descendant community. So I started to do a little bit of research and I found that in Newfoundland, down the southern coast of Newfoundland, there's a whole area that has all these towns that are um, people that came from from Waterford, in, in fact, Dublin, Cork, all these other places. But what's interesting is that they didn't really move around much. They stayed kind of where they were. There were fishing communities, a lot like Irish uh, towns. And they kept a lot of the traditions and they kept a lot, uh, they kept the uh, the accent, which was amazing. So I thought, well, this is great, we'll set it here. And I had been to Wyoming and loved Wyoming. And I kind of, I'd done some research there for another book that I hadn't actually ended up um, bringing out, but it was set in Wyoming as well. And I, I just loved the small town setting of Wyoming. And I just thought, um, rather than make the main character be a, a cop from the big city like Boston or New York, I thought, why don't I make him a, a guy from um, Wyoming, a little bit different. And uh, and I thought I'll make him Irish American because that suits the story because the story uh, ha- it has a lot to do with priests and his own father being Irish and all that kind of stuff. So I actually went to Newfoundland then um, and did some research and went, because I based, I based it on, when I was doing the research um, on the computer, I looked up the towns obviously, and I kind of picked one and thought, right, I'll base it on this town. And, you know, I'll have our, it's not even a town, it's a small village. And I'll have a kind of um, a template to use then for the book. And so I went to the, the village in Newfoundland and um, I just basically kind of listened to the, the, the accents and listened to the phrases they use and all that kind of stuff. And I kind of tried to include that as much as possible in the book. And uh, so I kind of, I had, I'd been to Wyoming, I'd been to Newfoundland, so I kind of had the basis for that mm-hmm. then. For, the, for that first book. And then when I decided to go on further, then I kind of liked the idea of set, setting it 
um, setting some of the of the books at least in Wyoming because so many crime thrillers are set in you know New Orleans, New York, uh, Boston, you know all these like California, oh, well, all these kind of places. Yeah. Yeah, and rarely set in places like, you know, maybe Montana or Wyoming or those kind of places. So I thought it'd be nice to set, when, when I decided to make it a series, I thought it'd be nice to have him based in Wyoming. And even if he moves around to other places, Wyoming is where he's kind of from, you know. Before, before I ask my next question, you, you differentiated between a village and a town. And funny, funny enough, Mark and I had just had that conversation a couple of weeks ago when we were recording another podcast where he was like, well... If it's a if it's a town, it has a church, and if there's no church, oh, then it's a village. No. Like, yes, no city, no city over here is a cathedral. Yeah, city has a cathedral. Um, I don't know okay. if it's the same in Ireland, yeah. but in in the UK, uh, a city has to have a cathedral. Um, and even if it's a really small city, if it's got a cathedral, it's a city. Um, and then if it doesn't have a city, uh, sorry, it doesn't have a cathedral, it's a town. Um, or, you know, and then it sort of works its way down to a village. So. You're probably, yeah, it's, it's, I'm actually, I'm not 100%, 100% sure, but it sounds about right. Like I know every village in town in Ireland has a church at least, you know. But yeah, you're probably right about the cathedral. Like Waterford has a cathedral. And, hmm. you know, I'd say probably every, every city in Ireland probably has a cathedral. All right. Now, I don't know that for sure. Sure. but uh, definitely like as far in Ireland of course given given that it's Ireland every little village even has, <laughs> has some kind of a, has some kind of a church but you will probably find that there are more pubs than churches usually <laughs> <laughs> it could be the tiniest village and it might have two pubs you know and, and one, oh. one church <laughs> I think oh. my my view is skewed since I live in the uh, in the south in the U.S. like you throw a dime and you hit a church it doesn't matter if you're in a city or a town or whatever yeah, you want to call it there's I mean, churches everywhere down have, here you probably have more churches than you do bars right uh in, in, in I, it, it could possibly i i wouldn't yeah. doubt it i mean they're yeah. they are everywhere and it, now it's like sometimes you have churches that like are in schools you know on sundays they do church service out of school and things like that so yes there's churches everywhere here <laughs> wow so like it was funny that you brought that up because like when Mark mentioned it to me, I was like, that would, that that rule can't possibly apply here. Like we we literally have churches everywhere. Like I don't everywhere, understand how that would make yeah. sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because you guys have so many different denominations. You see, in, in mm-hmm. Ireland, well, we're it's different nowadays. We're multicultural now in the last twenty years or so. So we have lots of different. But like up to like the eighties, it was it was um, it was Roman Catholicism or um, Protestantism or Church of Church of England. You know, Church of Ireland as it's called. And um, that was it, you know, and even even the Protestant churches that were few and far between in mm-hmm. Ireland, you know, it was mostly just Roman Catholic churches. But you guys have everything like, you know, you have Baptists oh, yeah. and Calvinists and all sorts of great stuff. <laughs> <laughs> everything. Um, so kind of switching gears here, if if at all possible, if your John Ryan novels were turned into graphic novels, how how could you see that playing out like do you do you have any artists in mind that you think would be a good fit for your work to kind of adapt it to a graphic novel format um <clears throat> let me think uh yeah i'm trying to think of names now will be the thing because um you know the way like you read so much in comics yeah. and graphic mm-hmm, novels mm-hmm. And if you don't know the like this i've seen it i've seen quite a few artists lately that i thought god i really like that art actually i tell you um i tell you who i love um i don't know i'm not sure it, it probably i'm not i think it would work for one or two of the books but it probably wouldn't work for broken falls broken falls is probably not as dark a novel as the dead girls the dead girls might be a, a dark enough novel for him eduardo riso 
of um of uh um, what's it, uh, 100 Bullets and um, oh yeah okay bullets, okay uh, he also did a Batman um, a Batman one with Brian Azzarello um, I can't remember the name of it now but I love his art actually he's doing one at the moment with Brian Azzarello for for Image I think um, Moonshine uh, it's it's one of the kind of a were it's kind of a werewolf uh, horror story but uh, I love his art um, Edward Edward Riso. also who was the other guy. There was another guy as well who used to do Hellblazer. I'm a huge Hellblazer fan, and there's been quite a number of um, Hellblazer artists who I love as well. Um, uh, I'm going to stick. Actually, no. I'm going to. I'm going to put a caveat in there. Hellblazer when it was with Vertigo, not. <laughs> oh, <laughs> not, 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 not the current, Just to be clear. Uh, yeah, the current yeah, DC main. No, yeah, because yeah. most of the uh, well, with the exception of the last reboot, which they just cut short as well, that was quite good. It was an English guy, Cy Spurrier, I think, was doing it, um, and um, a good art as well. But yeah, my God, some of the ones they did there in the last few years during the old DC uh, rebirth reboots and whatever, the arts work uh, and the writing was just atrocious. I'm sorry. Uh, well, well, I hope I don't offend anyone. Well, so when I was thinking about it, I was thinking something like um, Alex Malieve or Sean Phillips, that kind of, you know, like criminal. Uh, oh yes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. funny. I was Sean. thinking Sean Phillips too, like uh, um, like something super pulpy. Yes, sorry, I could, I don't know how I forgot Sean because I love Criminal. I love and I love yeah, I love everything those two guys do. Um, so yeah, Sean absolutely. And actually, I've always been a fan of Sean's because he was. He started out um, working on 2080 years ago and, and came up that kind of a way too and, and then crossed the pond. So yeah, Sean is fantastic. And I see his son is is now um, is now an artist as well. Oh yeah, yeah. his son is doing um, a run on That Texas Blood. Yeah, yeah, and it's I read it. It's really good. Yeah, no, we've read it as well. Yeah, we loved um, uh, We read the first six issues of Texas Blood. Yeah. And, uh, it's one yeah. of the few that I feel like it's my state. Right. <laughs> <laughs> really, that's really interesting because there's so much stuff that come that 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 is said in Texas, both novel wise and graphic novel wise. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, you you figure like a lot of them get some get it, get it wrong, do they? Yeah. Well, I mean, this one really caught my eye because the the very first page opens up on like a it's a sort of like a panoramic of a house in a on a cul-de-sac street or whatever. And the first vehicle that you see is an F-150, which it's a Ford truck, which cracks me up because my very first truck when I was 16 was an F-150. <laughs> so like oh, it was, good. there's another scene where they're trying to kill a rattlesnake in the backyard. And I have killed a rattlesnake with a machete in the back. Like it just, it was very reminiscent. Like this is oh, exactly yeah. the kind of shit that we do here. <laughs> That guy, the guy who wrote it actually came from there. Like he grew up there. He knew what he was talking about. Oh, no, no. That's the thing. If you read yeah. it, they, none of them come from Texas, but they oh, did their research. Oh. No, no, they, yeah, but they got it. They got it so much better than so many other people. It was it was wow. fascinating to me to kind of read that and be like, I can't believe you're not from here and you've got the nuance. Right. Well, that's brilliant because that gives us, it gives the rest of us who are writing about places that we didn't come from. Which is why I thought that comment from your from that agent was really stupid. Like, if if you put in the work and you do the research, I mean, I don't, yeah. I don't. Like, are you really going to ask a fantasy writer? Like, hmm, you haven't exactly been to Middle Earth. I'm not really sure that you're capable of writing a Lord of the Rings follow up. Like, no, that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, and I've never, I've never bought that. I bought that whole thing of um, uh, write what you know. You know yeah. Uh, if you wrote what you know, there'd be no genre writers. Exactly. 
you know so yeah i don't buy into any of that but, um, yeah that's a that's a really interesting question i hadn't thought because people would often say to me who would who would play john in a movie or something like that but i hadn't thought about the graphic novel that's really interesting i actually oh. think guys you've actually set me straight because i think about it more i think sean phillips is the man <laughs> you've made me curious now who would play john ryan in a tv show or movie um, I could see him as a kind of, it depends on the age that they were going to make him in the movie. When I originally started doing it, I, I was kind of thinking along the lines of the Irish actor Gabriel Byrne. I don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah. oh like love him. Yeah. yeah. Now, he's, he's probably a little bit uh, older than John now. Um, but that kind of dark brooding, uh, like you know, Gabriel went uh, maybe about 15 years ago when he, when he still, when he, before he went gray. Um, or maybe uh, 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 Michael Fassbender would be. I was just going to say uh, Fassbender yeah. would be my would be my second choice. Yeah, yeah. Fassbender is is. I've been actually, funnily enough, I've just seen him in a few things recently, and I, I was just kind of thinking to myself, yeah, he's got that kind of. Oh yeah, what movie was that? <laughs> it was like filmed in Norway, where he was a cop, and it was like a a serial killer. Oh, he was he was really good oh, in that see, one. I didn't see that one now. Um, I'm gonna have to now. I'm now I'm googling. <laughs> yeah, I'm try, yeah, I'm trying. I've been I've been binge watching movies in the last. So I'm trying to remember. Um, and I, I'm a huge uh, fan, obviously, as you can see from the books. I'm a huge fan of small town kind of crimes. Mm-hmm. So, so it's it's interesting what you're saying about the Texas one because I've been watching a bunch of kind of small indie movies lately um, that I hadn't even heard of before, but they, I just found them on Netflix or wherever you know, and watching them and. Uh, they're all set in small towns, various different small towns, mm-hmm. and you kind of think I'm I'm watching them, thinking like you know that they did that right or they did that wrong or whatever it is. But it'll be interesting to hear from the people that actually came from that area what they yeah. think of it, you know, because I, I am a huge fan of the small town thing. But like you say, you know, you can get it terribly wrong as well. Yeah, I, because a lot of people are really they do it's over the top. Like when I first moved out to LA, and I, I moved to LA in 2006. So this is, it was recent. It is not like I moved to LA in the seventies and literally some of the first people I would meet in LA would be like, Oh, you're from Texas. Do you have a farm? Do you have cows? Do you have horses? And I'm like, no, I, I'm, I'm from the fourth largest city in the country. What the hell do you mean? Do I come from a farm and do I have, no, I don't have any damn cows. What kind of question is that? Do you realize how big our cities are? Like- yeah. Like, the hell? Uh, oh, that Michael Fassbender movie was called the snowman, by the way. Okay, I gotta look up that one. I haven't seen that one yet. Was that good? Um, It's very, uh, it's very kind of desolate. It's it's really kind of slow, but it is definitely dark. He he plays a cop, but he's like a foreign cop in Norway. Uh, He's got a lot of history behind him. He's trying to catch a serial killer. It's it's gory and kind of violent, but. It's it not that right great, it but right it's yeah, but yeah. like it's it's really familiar. Like I was I so I bought the Broken Girls. I haven't finished it, but like that the the genre of like the cop thriller, not just yeah. it, it, that's that's right up my like serial killer books. Yeah. Uh, when it comes oh, to yeah, reading novels, actual so novels, like serial killer novels are my jam. So I'm super excited. However, that the whole premise is terrifying to me because I do love road trips and I like the open road. I like driving by myself. I've driven from Texas to California several times. So like the whole idea of like something happening while you're on a road trip and like no one ever yeah, really I, I kind gotta, of being able to. I got to tell you a little bit about the background to this because this is a great story. Um, <laughs> there's uh, after I finished the first one, I was thinking of of. Uh, 
I wanted to continue writing the character because I really enjoyed it and I, it got good feedback from readers and stuff. So I was like, cool, I, I'll, I'll write another one. And at the time, I had just read an article about um, uh, a girl who had written about when she was uh, 15, I think, or 16. She ran away from home and she hitchhiked around America uh, basically for a couple of years with her boyfriend and then she split up with her boyfriend. So she did it on her own. And she's now like in her late 40s or something like that. So it was like 30 years later and someone rang her up and said, hey, uh, do you remember you had a really bad experience like years ago? Was it this guy? And um, they, they, she showed her a photograph of this guy who had been just been arrested for, for as a serial killer for murders. And um, so she, she kind of went down a rabbit hole on that to try yeah. to figure out was it the same guy. And she actually, in the article, she never quite managed to say definitively if it was or not. But she covered all this ground about all these... Um, uh, the amount of of young girls who disappear every year, mm-hmm. um, a lot from truck stops, a lot uh, uh, who are abducted by by truckers, and then their bodies are dumped by the side of the road. And up yep. till recent times, because they cross state lines, um, the agencies, the different agencies, never connected with each other and never made right. the connection. You know, so uh, it was only in recent times the FBI started this kind of whole whole. Um, Cross Pan America kind of uh, you know um, agency which would which would talk to each other basically which it hadn't done before which you would think it would have been doing all along, but um so so I was fascinated by that so I started doing a lot of research on that and I started writing that and I had John um, in the Dead Girls then um, hunting down um, but looking for a, a young girl first and then hunting down one of these serial killers who's based on a, a, a real uh, life serial killer truck driver. Who was caught? It's creepy. Right? <laughs> yeah, very, yeah. very creepy. It's, but uh, yeah. first, the first strange thing that happened to me was, um, uh, well, there was a first, was was one nice thing that happened first was that um, I got a message from the girl who had written the article, and her I I, th- I thanked her in the credits, and somehow, uh, and oh, sorry, I wrote, yeah, that's what it was. I wrote an article for the Irish Times about it, and I mentioned her name in it, and obviously she must have had a Google alert or something like that, so her her agent did. And saw her name and said, "Hey, this guy just thanked you in in in, in, an, in a book about you know um, your your article and that." So she contacted me and uh, said she'd read the book and enjoyed it, and that was lovely. And then I got a message uh, um, uh, on Messenger on Facebook one day, and it popped up and just said, "And the guy the guy who I based it on was Robert Ben Rhodes was his name, and he was active in like the '90s, and he was caught I think in the 2000s, and um, then in the mid 2000s I think." And uh, so I got this message that just popped up that just said, I was in Robert Ben Rhodes' truck. Mm -mm. That was the entire message. And I was looking at this going like, and I was like, (laughs) is this someone joking? Is this what is this? Is one of my friends making a joke? But then I didn't didn't recognize, you know, who had sent it. So I replied back and I said, "Um, hi, uh, who's this? You know, uh, have you read the book or something or what? So uh, we got talking and, and, and we ended up talking for about an hour over Messenger. And it turned out that, yeah, she was a woman like in her 50s, I think, or something like that, who about 20 or no, actually, sorry, she was yeah, she was in her late 40s. So about 25 years before something like that, she was in her early 20s. She um, she took a, a ride in a truck with this guy and she was convinced it was Robert Ben Rhodes. And he had a young boy in the truck with him at the time. Uh, oh. who he said was his, who he said was his son. But uh, wasn't, um, and uh, she uh, she she got out of the truck and got out, started getting a weird vibe off him and wouldn't get back in and left. But the boy was left in the truck with her, and she 
believes that he was abducted as well and was murdered as well. Oh so my God. Yeah, that, oh, yeah, that was a whole strange experience having that conversation after all, after doing all the research mm-hmm. for like about a year, you know, and reading all of this grisly stuff. And then for someone to just contact you out of the blue like that and just say, you know, blah, blah, blah. And um, yeah, she was a fascinating character in herself. She had a lot of trouble in her own life as well. And uh, but yeah, she may she may end up being a character at some stage in the future as well. You never know. Uh, Has that ever happened to you before with any of the other books that you've written, where it's kind of like the lines of reality and your fiction kind of blur together like that? That was that was the best one by far. Um, Like you know, that was the most kind of. Oh, how would, I would just say like that was that was the one that was so close to the story you know mm-hmm. like this woman had literally been in the guy's truck you know um and she knew uh she had read I think she she had only oh, yeah, that's what she said yeah she's 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 basically kind of obsessed with finding more uh, more about this guy and you know what he did and stuff and so she had done a lot of research and in the process of the research had seen something about me and me mentioning that it was based on this character, Robert Ben Rose. And that's how she got in touch with me. But, you know, it's for it to be so close to what I was basing the book on for her to have actually been there in the truck, you know, and just contact me out of the blue like that. That was uh, really weird. (laughs) That's that's wild. It was brilliant, brilliant, you know. Well, yeah, I'm brilliant. But yeah, this must have been, I don't know, so... You can imagine like your hairs on your back just like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, like, yeah I actually stared at the message for about three minutes before I replied. I was just staring at it, going like, "What?" <laughs> I t- t- you know, honestly, when you start telling the story, it's not where I thought you were going at all. I thought you were going to say like somehow he'd found you or some sort of <laughs> like, like, like you know, like he he from prison or or, or, yeah, or not, some not sort yet, of other, not yet, not yet, or some sort of copycat. Like you know, oh, you know, do you do you want to get involved? You know, I thought you were going down a really dark path, but I guess you're, in you're, some way, you're writing the book in your head now. That's what. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but no, but hearing that though, I mean, I like on one hand she must feel relieved, and on the other hand she probably feels probably pangs of guilt that she didn't get that boy out so i think absolutely um, i think i'd say myself like i didn't get into huge amount of details with her but i i i got the impression that you know she's had a hard a bit of a hard life there was drugs and stuff involved and i I imagine some of that must come back from from you know what she experienced at at that time Mm -hmm. you know um because i think she's she's pretty much 100 percent sure that the kid was you know uh, was murdered. So, Sorry, yeah. you know, oh my gosh. you got to be asking yourself, could I not have just pulled him out of the truck or something? You know, I mean, who knows? Who knows what would have happened if she had? But she's probably, she was probably asking her that herself that question for a long time after. Oh, can, can imagine? I can imagine. Yeah. Um, so, switching up gears from um, the graphic novel question, we, we, we were sort of quite interested in the um, the cover art of actually the, the John Ryan books, especially. Uh, the dark. I, honest, I love that cover. I just wanted to know sort of what your involvement was in in, in all of your um, art covers. Like, do you get you know do you get involved in it, or does someone else do it? Like, what's what's your process for your yeah? For your no, I, I've done them all myself. Um, um, which, like, I found the images and and, and designed the covers, with the exception of Broken Falls, which a friend of mine did, who was a graphic artist. And um, for the second one, then um, I had seen this image of uh, a woman lying in in. A, she's actually lying in a bath in the original photograph that was done by a Waterford photographer who I know and I just saw it and I just thought wow that would make a killer image and I was thinking about the dead girls at the time so I asked her could I use that 
And the dark um, was one that I think I just, I, I think I, I do a lot of searching online for stuff, you know, looking looking at on Instagram and looking at uh, pixels and pexels and, and, yeah. and uh, you know, so I, and I have a lot of images stored away like that. I think like, you know, I can use, because if I don't use them for the covers, I use them as promos for the books just to put up on Facebook or Instagram as well, you know? So I had found the cover, the one for the dark, I think there as well. Um, but yeah, I, I do them all myself um, purely because um, I'm not because I'm a control freak or anything, just because it's, just because it's cheaper. <laughs> you know, and, uh, it's uh, you know the 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 budget on on these things is not uh, huge. So um, like I, I self publish, so therefore I'm using I do it on Amazon. And the great thing about Amazon uh, for their self-publishing is that, you know, you can do it for free if you want. You can pay them lots of money if you want to, but if you're willing to put in the work yourself, you'll get, you can mostly do it for free. And then you just pay for your own copies, you know, for your author copies to sell yourself or whatever, to sell in the bookstores. So, um, so from that point of view, you know, it would cost me however much to, to have Amazon or to have whoever do up a cover. So I just um, tend to do it myself. I'm handy enough with, with, um, with Photoshop and, and stuff like that. So that's why I kind of decided to go down that route. I know, I know you said like, obviously price, but it must be as part, as you're, as you're the creator, you know, you probably have a vision of what you'd like as well. Completely. Yeah. I, I, I like I say, like I, I, I have loads of images there anyway, saved, you know, and when I start thinking about the book and I start working on a new book straight away, then I'm looking through all the images and going, Oh, that would be great. Or that would be great. Or it's on my mind when I'm looking at things, so if I spot something, I go, that would make a great cover, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, you, you can be lucky. Sometimes you can spot stuff on, on, you know, things like Pexels where, where it's a site where the, where the images are free. Um, sometimes I've seen things on Instagram and, um, you know, I've asked permission for it and they either said no, or they said, yeah, that would be like, you know, thousand euro, please. And I'm like, I <laughs> <laughs> I'll find something else, you know. Yeah. So uh, yeah, so that's finding the image is kind of probably the hardest part. Then you know, and having just having done having having done the trial and error on 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 working on the covers for for a bunch of books, I'm kind of more comfortable with it now. It's like formatting the books, you know, for Amazon for the first for Broken Falls. I was lucky that I had a graphic now a graphic um, designer to do the cover for me, so that was that taken care of. So I could spend a lot of time on the formatting. And getting that wrong basically over and over again until I got it right. <laughs> and so once I'd done that, then um, with the dead girls, I kind of knew what I was doing, and I thought, right, we'll give it a lash at doing the the cover as well. And again, you know, trial and error, trial and error, trial and error. So after a few, after oh, what is it now? This is my sixth now. So um, it's kind of it's it's it started to become that bit easier now. So I'm kind of know what I'm doing and. Um, I've been asked by a couple of people to actually do their covers for them. So I think I must be doing something right. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the cover of the Dead Girls is really striking. Yeah, Definitely. that's, uh, yeah, I, I, I'll give a shout out in case she's watching. Um, Hayley Stewart is her name. She's a wonderful photographer in um, in Waterford. And she's uh, she's up on Facebook and Instagram as HK Stewart. She does some fantastic images. And that just really struck me, that image. Um it's actually just it, 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 the, the original image, when you see it out of the context of the dead girls in the cover, um, it just looks like a young girl lying with her eyes closed in the bath. But when you put the dead girls underneath, <laughs> it's, it's immediately like a dead body, you know? Oh, I the just, power of suggestion. I'm telling you, it works so well, you know? 
Um, so totally switching to something different. So with, with your latest novel, The Bone Lake, uh, it's a short novel, a crime story. Uh, we're kind of, it's, it's kind of following uh, Jimmy Durand, who's a different character than John Ryan. Yeah. So what kind of research and, and did you put into this one? And can you give us like a little tease of what to expect with, with it? Yeah, this one was kind of sitting around for a while. I had, I had kind of started the story. Um, I had this idea of just this kind of older character, this guy who, who'd been kind of, you know, um, a low level kind of criminal guy for a, a lot of his life and had eventually kind of decided, OK, enough is enough now. I'm leaving that behind, you know, and moved to this town where it was kind of a lot of fancy houses, you know, rich lawyers and, and, and accountants and stuff like that. And the likes of Jimmy and his the people who, who um, lived around the area where he lived were the people who, you know, cleaned their houses and uh, cleaned their uh, uh, pools and, and fixed their air conditioners and all that kind of stuff. And Jimmy was just one of those guys. And he was happy enough to be doing that. And he's living in a trailer park and, you know, he's happy enough. And then um, he gets a call out for a routine job and that routine job ends up turning into a murder case and Jimmy is um, falsely accused of the murder and he realizes that someone's trying to pin the murder on him basically and he doesn't know whether it's uh, someone um, involved, someone from the, the victim's family or whether it's somebody in the police department of the town that's trying to do it. So he basically has to kind of fall back on his old criminal skills to try and find out who it is um, that's trying to frame him and who actually did commit the murder in the first place. Well, where is it set, by the way? I couldn't figure out where it was set. Um, yeah, I kind of left that open-ended. So oh, okay, of, okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like this. Uh, um, uh, I, I was imagining it kind of as one of those kind of, um, there's, a, there's a town in uh, New Jersey, kind of down the coast of New Jersey, and they call it the Irish Riviera. And it's where all the rich Irish live. Uh, when they make loads of money in it, over in New Jersey <laughs> and they buy their fancy houses and uh, it's that kind of a town I'm sure every you know every place has has one of those towns you know and I think I just thought it would be nice uh be a nice setting because you know all of those towns have to have the people that do the the, the actual work yeah the actual yeah. work exactly yeah. you know and and they don't live in the fancy houses so yep. they're probably they're living across town you know on the other side of the tracks yeah so i like i kind of like the idea of that again it's it's me going back to the small town thing that i love you know um but uh kind of looking at i guess looking at the kind of uh the dichotomy between the the rich and the poor you know and and, and that kind of thing and how easy it is for the rich to get away with murder and not so easy for the poor. You know? Oh man, oh, yeah, yeah. you got enough money, you can do anything, right? <laughs> exactly. That's, that's what you always, that's what you always see in the, or read in these, in book, books, comics, mm -hmm. TV, movies, you've got the money, you can get away with murder pretty much. So yep. it's amazing. It, Actually, and I, funnily enough, I just watched, um, I know I'm very late coming to it. You guys might have seen it. And, um, the night manager uh with tom no Wilson. i've not seen oh. it no no it's on my yeah. list it I is just, yeah. so good ah uh, you've seen it jasmine yeah. yeah it's amazing and i just finished the last episode last night and i'm um, talking about what you can do if you've got money and mm -hmm. lots of money and get away with so that's such a great uh, um and hugh laurie is so brilliant in the in the role um as this kind of billionaire bad guy. yeah uh, it's wonderful so yeah absolutely there you know that's kind of um i suppose I kind of think of the other books as kind of dwelling a lot in the underworld or maybe just in, you know, blue collar world. And this was probably one of the first books that kind of has really touched 
I've written that has kind of you know touched on that other other side of it where you you, you get to see the blue collar guys, but you also get to see the the people that they have to uh, work for as well. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's that's a timely topic. Given oh, given the way that things have sort of fallen apart with uh, COVID, or the way that COVID nineteen has kind of exposed all of these things for the uh, and put them into the open, so yeah, cool. absolutely, one hundred percent. I think like you know, it's uh, COVID has been a uh, has exposed more than anything. I think you know the the disparity between rich and poor. You know, um, it's even the same. Like I know it's it's hugely a huge problem in America. And probably in England as well, and it's the same over here. You know, we're seeing a lot of guys who have money, uh, you know, who are in positions of power, whose families have managed to get the shot, the vaccine when you know when they were it should have been way behind in the queue. So yeah. you know, yeah, it's rampant. Yeah, okay. um, you know, you know, um, actually, when you were just talking about what you've been watching, um, the night manager, and this is, I think, my mind has been coming a little bit in crime focus because the last two weeks I've finally given in and over the last two weeks decided to go and binge watch all of line of duty um have you have you read have you watched any of line of duty i've heard all the buzz but i haven't got around oh, to it yet don't yeah. don't let it don't get uh i've stayed away from all the spoilers and i i literally it's all i'm well, watching I, at the moment. Yeah, I actually know nothing about it even though i've heard so much about it i haven't really read much about what it's actually about so I oh yeah stay away from all the spoilers uh, the twists and turns along the way uh it's, it's amazing it's, but if you but if you love crime like you do which i know you do um so this it, line of duty just follows a, an anti-crime police squad and i mean to be fair i can't imagine the corruption is as bad well maybe it is but the corruption is as bad as what seems to be in this tv show um i would say the first season is fairly weak but then season two onwards just so good and like every season and like but yeah i mean obviously it's set in london so it's it's not small town at all but yeah if you're if you you know if you're interested um if you want to see more about corruption i definitely would recommend that but yeah um, no, it's definitely on the list yeah i just didn't uh, as you said it's one of, it, it's all about the getting around to it isn't it and it's oh, funny no, because no. it's like the night, the night manager's been on my list for for so long and i i love i love uh john carrie's stuff anyway and i love i love the movies um and and uh, i just happened to uh, land upon it the other uh, like a couple of nights ago on on netflix and then just binge the whole thing <laughs> like, you know when it grabs you it grabs you, you know? yeah I do know what you mean about small town because um, I don't know if you watched um, Broadchurch. It came out a couple of years ago, um, set oh, set on the yeah, beach. Yeah, I've heard of that one. And, as well, um, yeah. So, like, I mean, the murder mystery. Just everybody knows each other. So they show like the opening scene of Broadchurch. Like, you know, somebody leaves their house and sort of on their way to work says goodbye. Uh, sorry, says hello to like every single person from the from the own, from the single reporter that they have in town um you know to the postman to you know to the electrician that everybody knows and 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 you know like the the, the mystery of the crime like i won't ruin it in case you ever want to watch it but i mean you know it, they they know the murderer like basically like the murderer is in their social circle um yeah. and, and there obviously are places like you say out there where the murderer is literally underneath underneath your nose and and um yeah i i, I actually am quite intrigued by that small town thing so yeah um, i think that's fascinating like that idea i even just read a, i was doing a bit of research like a couple of weeks ago and, and just read another one that i hadn't read about before true life story of a small town in america again i forget where it was now but um six young girls had gone missing there like teenage maybe 16 to 18 year old girls had gone missing there and 
it was such a small town that everyone knew the girls. And like you're saying, everyone, uh, you know, presumed the, the killer still hasn't been caught, but they presume they know whoever the killer is. And I mm-hmm. find that such a fascinating dynamic in a story. This idea that, you know, like you're saying, everybody in the town probably knows this person, but they just can't figure out who it is, you know, yeah, and that is that is very, you know, just for a human nature point of view, that that's fascinating. But that's, that's how things start to spiral out of control, too. When you have these small towns and you have all of these assumptions and it's like, ah, I bet it's the guy at the dairy farm and the guy at the dairy <laughs> yes. farm like doesn't have anything to do with it. But it just yeah. takes that one person to say it out loud for everybody to kind of just fall down that that whole train. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a fascinating um, case in Ireland um, where there was a French woman killed uh, in West Cork years ago and the guards the irish police they um uh, I'm, i think they arrested the guy at the time but basically anyway they've been after this one guy um for years about it and he's always denied it and he's living in a small town in west cork where the girl was a french woman was killed and he's managed to avoid being extradited to france for it for years but it's been going on for about 20 years and you've got to wonder what it must be like living in that town you know, and everyone knowing him and him knowing everyone and who thinks he's guilty and who thinks he's innocent. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's that it's that that whole kind of thing. And as you say, the different assumptions, you know, obviously some people must think he's innocent. Some people must think he's guilty. And that's down to their own prejudice as well, because maybe some people like him, some don't like him. You know, right. so it's all their own prejudice that come into this as well. So, yeah, it's just I think it's just fascinating from a, a psychological standpoint. Um, I just find it more fascinating than. Um, I, I mean, I love I love um, cop shows and, and um, novels that are set in in big cities as well. But I just find it that bit more fascinating to get right inside someone's head when you're in like a, a small community like that. You know, oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it's almost wonder, like you have nowhere to hide. I just yeah. wonder with with Jimmy. Obviously, he's the opposite to to John. He's obviously on the other side. I just wonder what made you, you know, where you know what made you want to switch gears into going from the sort of, well, former criminal's point of view and what the inspiration was for his character? Well, funnily enough, I'd done a little bit of that with uh, John in um, the book before because John kind of, uh, when when I started out with him, I wanted him to have a little bit of a, a dark past. Um, so his dad his dad was a cop and his, his dad died when, when John was young and John left home. Uh, as a teenager and and traveled around and stuff and kind of was always kind of trying to escape the shadow of his dad who was this you know upright good church going um honest cop kind of and so he kind of fell in with bad people and you know got involved in a bit of crime himself before he eventually went on to become a, a cop and then a private detective so i had i kind of touched on um John's past a little bit in the, sh- the first short novel that I wrote, which was The Lotus Eaters, which was the one before this one. And I, I kind of enjoy that. <laughs> I kind of en- enjoy dabbling in the underworld a little bit. So, um, I mean, like, I don't I don't go hardcore into it. I didn't in that one, and I don't in this one with Jimmy either. There's just there's just a few mentions of his past, you know. But mm-hmm. I did think as I, was, as I was writing this one as well, um, I'd say Jimmy might have another story about his past in him. You know, there might be a there might be a little story from Jimmy's past in him as well about what he actually got up to. I guess it's just uh, it's kind of that Sopranos thing. You're just fascinated by that lifestyle, aren't you? you yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though Jimmy is is very much way way down on the wrong, 
um, he wouldn't be anywhere near the the uh, Tony Soprano level. But um, even so, you're just still fascinated by that. I, I, when I lived in New York, we lived across the hall from a guy, an Italian American couple, and the guy was a really really low down foot soldier uh, for John Gotti, and uh, he used to tell us these stories, you know. And that was just fascinating. Uh, I think that's that's part of it. You know, you just hear these stories and you, you know that it's probably wrong. <laughs> it, is, it is wrong. It's not probably wrong. It is wrong. But uh, but you just can't help but be fascinated by it, you know. And um, I remember this guy saying to me uh, one, one night when he had a few whiskeys, and it's all gone as shit since Gotti got uh, pinched. <laughs> <laughs> Most people would think the other way. You know? yeah. they think everything that, that Gotti getting put away is a good thing. But, yeah, uh, but in the criminal organization world, there's when there's a power vacuum, it's a problem. It's yeah. a big problem. And, and as far as he was concerned, you know, things had gone to hell since Gotti went away, and he wasn't getting, <laughs> you know, he wasn't making anything like the money he used to make. Yeah. You know, at the time, the time I met him, like that was all ancient history, you know. But um, he was when I met him, he was back to work and um, working uh, construction. Um, although construction, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, in in uh, yeah. New York, that could mean a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he claimed to um, work in construction anyway. Yeah, yeah. He, putting well, concrete boots on people probably. <laughs> was it recently we had um, Jasmine and I had a conversation with another writer, um, and the we uh, the topic of flashbacks came up, and I kind of wanted to pick your brains on what your view was. Um, because he he's uh, the, the person we, we interviewed, um, sorry, not interviewed, um, came on the um, show, Mello, who writes for, um, like, it does Stars and a few other things, and, uh, like, um, what's it, American Gods. Uh, but, yeah. he, but, we, but the conversation of flashbacks came up in the use of television and movies, but I wanted to know what your thoughts were as a novelist, uh, novel writer, uh, the, the use of flashbacks in, in books, and just wondered sort of whether or not, is it a good use, is it something good to use, like a good, you know, so obviously we're in crime. You've got the Who Done It, so that could be used as a as a way of explaining the Who Done It. You know, like a flashback. Like I would imagine, if in most books, a flashback would be a chapter. But I kind of just wanted to know what your thoughts were on the use of them, and if you did use them, like you know, or if you ever thought about using them. That's kind of yeah. Funnily enough, I used them a lot in Broken Falls um, initially when I, I when I wrote it initially, and then I, when I did that course that I was talking about, um, the Masters. And I, I brought it to, to the other writers in the class. The first thing they said to me was, because like exactly as you say, I was I was devoting entire chapters to um, the backstory of John's youth growing up to illustrate the story of his parents and blah, 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 because it was important to the plot. And they just came back to me and they said, yeah, it's, it, like these are lovely chapters, but they don't belong in this book. You're pulling us out of the action. We want to be with John in Newfoundland, not back 20 years or 30 years ago when he was a kid in um, Wyoming you know we want to stay where we are now so I had to actually take all those out which was crushing because <laughs> <laughs> there were whole chapters and there was about six or seven of them you know yeah. and um, I'd take them all out and then I had to find a way of just drip feeding that information in um, whilst uh, keeping the story moving forward in the present day you know so um, I tried to do that in in, in you know, but John would hear a song on the radio that would remind him of his mother, you know, an old Irish song or something. Yeah, it was yeah. it was it was good because it was set in an Irish area. So there was a lot of stuff about memories and things coming up that would remind John of his youth. So I was able to drip feed it in that way. But um, ever since I, I, I got that feedback, I've been very reticent about using too much 
flashbacks are are are, are devoting too much time to flashbacks in, in in the novels. If I do, I try and always kind of um, thread it into where the story is at the moment. So you know, John's sitting having a drink somewhere, and he remembers something about the past. But we snap back into the present. You know, after a couple of pages of that, we don't take too much time to let the reader get drawn out of the main story at the moment because I was full sure this was amazing you know every couple of <laughs> chapters we have this wonderful chapter about John when he was you know 10 years of age and what his dad did and stuff and people were like nope <laughs> it's amazing to hear you pretty much saying the same thing that Melo said basically kind of stay away from flashbacks I assume that if you probably had a whole say book of 30 chapters and you shoved in one flashback which was maybe vital to the to the plot like like the whodunit kind of thing that might be okay but like you say to to every other chapter go back to when he's 10 years old stay away yeah. from it so yeah and i think if they're shorter chapters as well absolutely that'd be that would probably be fine the the chapters in broken falls were longer chapters and um, so you know they and and the, and the flashback ones tended to be even longer again whereas i think like if you were writing maybe a a, a novel that had maybe 50 chapters each chapter was only about five pages like mm -hmm. absolutely you know you could easily throw in a five page flashback there no problem you know but um yeah i think i think just you know every two or three chapters having this having 20 pages or, or more flashing back yeah it was just obviously a bad idea you know but i did get to use it for other stuff so nothing ever goes to waste yeah, <laughs> i think it's it's interesting the older i get the more i i have realized that I don't enjoy flashbacks as much as I used to when I was younger, taking in whatever it is, what, whatever the medium is, whether it's movies or comics or whatever. Um, but I don't mind flashbacks when whatever they're flashing back to is not directly related to the story. Like if you're telling me about something that tangentially related, sort of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where it's like, oh, that guy in the taxi is also the guy in this movie over here. I'm, I'm fine with that. But like, telling concurrent stories but in two different time periods yeah i know what you mean i'm, yeah. I'm okay with that but uh, yeah i don't really like the it's it's funny that you put it into words because that's kind of what i was thinking in my head. i don't like being pulled out of the story that i have started to like so Absolutely. when you're reading something and like i'm into these characters and i'm into this setting and i'm into this plot line and then all of a sudden it's 20 years ago and i'm like oh that's a really jarring transition to be taken out of the momentum of the current story and now i'm pulled 20 years back to kind of put all those pieces together myself before i get to pick up the story again 100 and i couldn't like i couldn't like uh, I, I keep i tell everybody this and i tell all all the people in my writing class and stuff this this story about like this um about the about that uh, a, a manuscript when it went in when i brought it in first into um the class and what came out at the end of the year in other words, it came out completely different, obviously, because all the flashbacks were taken out from the start, <laughs> as well as other stuff as well. But like, I can't, you know, thank those people enough because you can't see that as a writer. You know, right. you, as I say, you can't, can't see the wood for the trees. You think you're writing these wonderful flashbacks and, you know, maybe you are writing these wonderful chapters. They just don't happen to belong in this book. Mm -hmm. you know and it's, it's pulling the reader out of it so it's like a, it's a hugely important thing to have somebody um who is a, a, who is an avid reader and who is someone who will be some who will be critical with your work to read your work you know right. um not overly critical because you know you don't want them <laughs> tearing, destroying, tearing, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> destroying your, your soul you know yeah. but uh 
someone, uh, but like on the other end, you have like, you know, your friends will just say, oh yeah, it's great. You know, yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> you need someone in that middle ground who's critical enough, you know, to say, no, this is not working. Because, you know, as a writer, you can't always see that stuff yourself. Well, because you can't pull it out of your own head, right? Like, in your mind, it all makes sense. But you already know all of the connections and other people don't. Exactly. Absolutely. And especially in a crime story, you don't know what the payoff is going to be till you get to the end. I know what the payoff is from the very start. Mm -hmm. You don't know that. So I might lose your interest with one of these chapters, you know, because you can't see what I'm what I'm foreshadowing. What's going Mm -hmm. to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about COVID. So COVID obviously had a massive impact on creators and over here in the UK, um, basically, obviously it affected everybody across the world. So it reduced creator output a lot. So especially in the film and TV industry, and it had obviously huge effects on people around the world in terms of mental health. But one of the things I saw in the UK, which I thought was probably i'm trying to think of the right word like maybe upsetting to creators because they maybe felt slightly undervalued so the government put out these things about artists just go and retrain and go and get jobs that they were kind of like trying to say were more useful like and you know but it was i remember i saw a lot of artists online slating the government for that those kind of like messages and um and I just sort of wondered, really, like, I don't know how it was in Ireland in terms of handling um, creators. And I guess because obviously we had things like furlough and payments like that. I don't know if you guys had the same thing. I just sort of wondered how you, you handled the, the situation over there in terms of what I mean, your own mental health, but also just trying to get through the last 12 months has probably been quite tough. You know, things I know you're a playwright as well. And obviously a lot of open, you know, a lot of face to face activities even book signings you're probably not able to do them and promote your book as well as you'd like to just sort of wondered how you'd handle it and how you can see things going forward yeah um i think it's been pretty much um for us it's been pretty much the same as england we actually saw that whole campaign and there was a huge reaction to that campaign in ireland as well um, and the only good thing that came out of that campaign were all the people that did the photoshopped ones about like Boris is going to be looking for a new job and all that. <laughs> yeah, I saw that shit. Yeah, they were they were amazing. But uh, yeah, like we we had something quite similar as well coming from um, one of our ministers in the government, basically kind of saying. Um, you know, six months into it, that maybe it was time for artists to start thinking about retraining, you know. So we, we had something just as insulting over here. Um, we did have we did have some small degree of help from the Arts Council and, and, and uh, um, the government, but not enough by any means. Um, and, it, it, you know, like I, I keep like I keep keeping as short as possible yeah, yeah. about this all night. But basically, <laughs> I mean, uh, they, they, you know, we what we saw over here, as I'm sure you saw there, and, and Jasmine, you saw in America probably as well online, was the artists were the first ones that jumped into the breach in the sense of keeping people entertained. You know, yeah, exactly. So we, yeah. we had huge amounts of of um, uh, musicians putting stuff up online, just trying to keep people entertained, especially during the first lockdown and stuff like that. You know, and then when it became um, expedient for the government then you know we were just like pushed to the side and completely forgotten about as usual you know so it's been very very hard and the last the day before it was announced it was march uh 11th i remember it because i was doing a lunchtime play i'd written a play and i was actually uh acting in it it was a two-hander and we did three days in uh, of, uh three lunchtimes and the last lunchtime that play that we did um that evening it was announced that we were going into lockdown so that was the last thing that I did 
um, and I had plans to do a bunch of uh, other plays throughout that throughout 2019. So, um, you know, personally, yeah, absolutely, that got you know a lot of stuff that I had planned to do got killed off. Um, obviously, the the books. The books, um, it, it's good. It's good in one way in that, like you know, um, they can continue on, but they kind of didn't continue on because I kind of had a bit of that whole thing that everyone else had, which was loads of time on my hands and couldn't quite get my head around doing anything with it, you know. <laughs> which I think yeah. everyone, and, and, and especially creative people, were feeling as well. It's like, oh my god, I'll write this, I'll do that, I'll paint this, you know, and then you just sitting there going like nothing, well, yeah, <laughs> nothing. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I actually, I had, um, I didn't end up in hospital, but I actually had for two weeks, I had what I, I'm presuming was COVID because at the time they weren't, it was early, it was April of 2019. So it was just about a month after we went into lockdown and I was really, really sick. And uh, my doctor basically said, yeah, yeah, have COVID. Um, so they never tested me because at the time they, were, they weren't testing everybody. Um, and so like, we're talking, this is two years ago now at this stage nearly um but this is at the very start of it they weren't really testing people so he said yeah just presume you have it so i went through a horrible two weeks of it and i i, I found it hard to get back into it after that as well and um, just after the whole illness thing as well like i was just kind of completely drained for ages afterwards and they, they talk about this long covid thing i found like the the um what what i'm presuming was covid um, was I, I had so much uh, lethargy afterwards, um, you know, just really drained and just couldn't sit down and do anything for months and months afterwards. So, yeah, it was like, it was literally, I think probably most of 2019 just went by with very little being done. I was like everyone else throwing up some songs online and doing stuff like that just to keep the creative side going. But apart from that, no. Um, nothing until like kind of 2020 rolled around and then it was like okay yeah now we'll uh, I'm sorry I'm, I'm getting my ears wrong now aren't I uh, <laughs> yeah, 20, yeah 2020, 2020 yeah. I should have said 2020 was uh, yeah it wasn't until the end of 2020 until 2021 rolled around that I started uh, kind of that's when I started to work on uh, the Bone Lake and kind of thought okay it's time to get something out there again now but yeah the most of 2020 just went by um, either either feeling like crap or or just not <laughs> not with any any uh, any motivation, yeah. Any motivation to do anything whatsoever, you know. So it's did you put so yourself on a me. schedule for 2021, or how did you how did you kind of get back on track for 2021? Yeah, I think I kind of I think I kind of went into it thinking, okay, it's time to get some stuff done here now because I got a few things going on at the moment which have been kind of going since back in January. So yeah, I guess I to to a certain extent I did kind of not not a rigid schedule, but I did kind of say, okay, first thing I want to do is I want to do the bone lake, and then I've got these other ideas that I'm going to get working on as well and kind of get those into the into the pipeline now. So I'm, I've hopefully got got a few things coming out. Um, one thing that was great was that uh, we did my uh, myself and another writer friend of mine we started a, a literary magazine in um 2020 uh, which was a stupid time to start a literary magazine <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but we you didn't already, know that going into it <laughs> <laughs> we were already halfway there so we were like oh so uh, yeah so we did that so that's been great because we've kind of that's kept us busy creatively which is brilliant because mm -hmm. people are still submitting stuff you know people are still writing and they are submitting stuff and, and that and so it's great for us so we've been kind of We've spent the last six months now gearing up for the next issue that's coming out. And we've had that kind of keeping us tipping over when we, you know, if you feel like you're kind of not doing anything yourself, at least you you feel like you're doing something creative when you're, yeah. you know, 
you're you're looking at submissions for the magazine and stuff like that you know so yeah but i mean it's very it's very very it's still very very hard i mean there's no music like i i would have played um at one point i would have played some a lot of gigs in in, in bars and stuff like that um mm. that's been knocked on the head completely and is going to be probably non-existent till probably the next year um, the theatres are still closed. A friend of mine just did a streamed uh, play from the Theatre Royal in Waterford, which mm-hmm. I think was probably one of the first things that the Theatre Royal has done. And that would be a place that would have plays on every night of the week, you know, uh, shows on every night of the week. So, yeah, it's, it's very much um, just starting a, a long crawl back for us. And I suppose the same for you guys as well, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, COVID has taken up so much of everyone's time, um, but it's it's nice to at least hear that 2021 has kind of pushed you back into the, okay, let's try to get this back on track, but you know, no no rush, don't force yourself to do anything Yeah, I think crazy. everyone's kind of thinking that way, aren't they? I think, yeah. it, I think it's probably the same as all, you know, England, Ireland, the States, it's, 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 it's the vaccines have started, people are starting to very slowly think you know by the end of this year things could be some way back to normal um but at the same time you know everyone's at the same time i think it's kind of thinking in the back of their minds you know yeah we've saw, we've seen this before like in ireland last uh, at the towards the end of, of 2020 um people started loosening up a little too much mm-hmm. and uh december and january were the worst months that we had so like January was an absolute, you know, the numbers went through the roof when the way that they happened for the previous nine months. So I think people are, are, are still kind of very tentative about the whole thing, you know, but it's, it's definitely, I think, um, I think of myself in some way lucky in that I am able to do, you know, writing classes um, over Zoom. So I, I, you know, I didn't lose all my, income from doing writing classes and teaching guitar lessons and stuff like that i can do that over zoom and i can still put my books out and stuff like that so i i I think of myself as you know kind of lucky in that way there's a lot of people i know it's going to take them a long time to pick up the pieces you know um both both financially and creatively i think from from the last you know 12 months or whatever yeah well i i hate to end it on a on a sour note so why don't you tell us what other kind of stuff you got coming up since uh it seems like we're you're on the uptick again which is a great thing yeah absolutely yeah so i kind of um i had this idea which dated back to the dead girls actually but it was an idea for a short film and um it was it, the idea was to have um the women who had kind of survived or gotten away from the serial killer um, to hear their voice in a way that you don't always hear their voices in the stories. Um, so I had done a, a, a little short uh, piece that was acted out um, for a thing called Fireside Monologues. And it was basically a bunch of writers gave monologues to a bunch of actors and the actors acted them out. And I was watching this and I saw a bunch of actors that I really liked. And I just thought, wow, that idea I had for these women and this serial care, this could, you know, some of these guys could really pull this off. So that is in the midst of being worked on by the actors at the moment. So that's going to be a short film that I'm going to basically, I've written it and I'm going to edit it, I suppose, direct it in, this, in a sense, but I'm not really directing. The lads are just filming themselves and or their friends are filming them or whatever. But there's four great actors working on that. Um, three women and the guy who's playing the serial killer and the three women. Then are these three women from very different walks of life, but who were all... 
uh, victims of his who managed to escape in one way or another. And it's just kind of giving their voice and you, you hear his voice also, but towards the end of the short film, the idea is that his voice becomes the lesser of the voices. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you realize that, you know, these Ted Bundy's and Charles Manson's and whoever's, they're not supermen. They're not superheroes. They're sad little men at the end of the day, yeah. you know, and the strength of their victims is, is what's a superpower rather than, right. the, you know, the, the, the serial killer themselves. So that's the idea behind that. So that is hopefully going to come out in um, July, I think, uh, all going well. And I'm just going to try and enter that into some short film festivals and stuff like that. Um, sounds amazing yeah 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 that's kind of it'll be the first i've kind of dabbled a little bit in messing around with stuff but this will be the first one where i've had like you know professional actors doing the whole thing and hopefully it'll look really good when it's done so that's kind of the main thing on the horizon and as i said i've got this um uh, literary journal then will be coming out during the summer our summer issue as well it was called the wax lemon and that'll be our um our second issue the last one was a winter issue so this is our summer issue of the wax lemon so that's what's keeping me busy for the next one <laughs> um uh, like joseph said as we sort of bring this to a close as well where can people find you online so the best place to go is probably um the facebook page Derek flynn books so it's d-e-r-e-k-f-l-y-n-n books and everything is on there basically anything to do with my writing all the books are on there and stuff and um there'll be lots of stuff going up on that page about the about bone lake the bone lake when it comes out and that'll be out on may 28th and it will be available on amazon as well and also for anyone that wants um a signed paperback copy you can check out Derek Flynn books and there'll be um there'll be a post a pin post on there telling you how you can get a signed copy if you like one of those as well that sounds amazing as well I'm sure like as things loosen up you can hopefully return to signing in real life as well so, yeah that's what I have missed now for the Lotus Eaters I didn't for every other book I had a I had a launch in um, Waterford and I had a launch for one of them in Dublin as well which was brilliant and hmm. um, a brilliant bookshop in Dublin and um, I haven't, I wasn't able to do that for the other seasons. I'm not able to do it for this one either. So hopefully when I finally get around to whatever the next one will be, there will be a book launch in that. Hopefully. <laughs> um, so thank you very much for joining us for our first little conversation. Yeah, uh, thank you creator. so much. It's been really thank enjoyable. You Thanks it's, for it's having you. Horribly um, enjoyable. I didn't feel all that time go by at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, that might be to my detriment now. That's me because I don't know when I talk too much. But, uh, it's it's been three hours. So you can join us for our next episode where we'll be reviewing Castlevania season four. As listeners may remember, we reviewed all three seasons during February and we will also be reviewing the new Army of the Dead. Both of those are on Netflix. And as a reminder, we did start a second podcast series where we tackle some of the most essential graphic novels of all time. Our sixth Late to the Party book club episode was Akira Volume 1 by Kazuhiro Tomo. And that episode came out at the end of April next month. Well, this month, rather. Uh, Our book club book is going to be They Call This Enemy by George Takei, Justin Isinger, and Steve Scott. You can also follow us on social media. We're Geeks Unleashed on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can get this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Google, Spotify, Podbean, Apple. We are everywhere. So be sure to give us a five-star review and tell your geeky friends. Thank you very much. Um, Cheers for listening. Have a good week. Bye.